This is Looking Forward, conversations about the future of work. Brought to you by Miller Knoll. Hey, listeners, today we're talking with Debbie Lovich, Managing Director and Senior Partner at Boston Consulting Group. Debbie's recognized as one of the world's foremost voices on the future of work. And in this short talk, we zoom out to take a look at the transformations that are really underway and why, even in a down economy, pursuing changes in how organizations work is more important now than ever. Enjoy this conversation with Debbie Lovich. Hey, Debbie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. We're thrilled to have you. It's been a privilege getting to work together in similar circles and get to know you a little bit. But why don't we start with the basics? Maybe you can share a little bit about you and what you do with our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a managing director and senior partner at Boston Consulting Group. I've been there 28 years and I've spent the last 10 years focused on people and organization and leadership and culture and ways of working. And since COVID hit, like many people, I became fascinated with this once in a lifetime opportunity to fix a lot, not everything, I was about to say everything, but a lot of what's broken about work and there's a lot that's broken. So I um, have been focused pretty much on that for the past two years and now lead that and are thinking on that globally for Boston Consulting Group. Knowing that this was an area of passion for you before the pandemic, when all of these things started to change, did you see it? Was there an element of positivity and excitement like, oh, this might be a chance to address some of these things? Or did it feel like a setback in some ways? No, it, it was weird, right? Like, so I'm married to an anesthesiologist who was in the hospital while this real human tragedy is going on, right? And, and my husband has asthma. And so I was super worried about him and he didn't have enough protective equipment and schools being canceled for my kids, right? So on the one hand, and just the level of death, like you can't get your head around it. So one hand, there's all this human tragedy and fear, real fear going on. On the other hand, I'm like, wow, this is an opportunity to redefine what work is and to make it better. So I had this strange terror and passion at the same time, right? And not that it's like a silver lining to rethink work, but it was this almost like we got to grab this opportunity, right? We can't miss it. We can't become so absorbed in the tragedy that we don't grab this opportunity to make work better and make something positive come out of it all. And I I think it's become evident that organizations are thinking about the future of work in ways that they probably have never thought about in the past. Some might be more reactionary, some might be more uh, prescriptive, but what kind of questions in the course of your day-to-day work are organizations bringing to you? Oh my goodness, there's so much. I mean, it, it, the other thing that's happened is, you know, the world has been thinking about fixing what's broken with work for decades now. Flexible work, part-time work, agile ways of working, but it's been like massively slow, like iceberg melting kind of slow, which even with global warming has speeded up, you know, but um, it's been really slow. And it's also been relegated to the world of HR to think about. And what happens is, you know, especially around flexible work, 
it's become like a women's issue or like, you know, have everyone work differently for a small part of the population and they get completely disenfranchised. And what happened with COVID is it made it a CEO everybody issue because every leadership team had to think about what are we going to do when this is over? Are we going to go back? Are we not going to go back? They had to make real estate decisions. I was me literally had breakfast this morning with the COO of a global banking organization that's based in Asia Pacific and he's visiting Boston to visit his kids. So, and he had seen my Ted talk on this topic and read some of the things. And so we had breakfast this morning and he even said to me this morning, like a couple hours ago, I never thought about these things and now I'm consumed with it. Mm. This is like one of our biggest issues. Do we bring people back or not? How do we bring them back? Do we allow people to work from different countries? What are the tax issues? So it's fascinating, fascinating what COVID did to elevate this important agenda. Yeah. And and given the instability and rapidly changing nature of the world, are you finding that those who have a mind for strategy, for business continuity planning, are thinking beyond supply chains and traditional sort of factors and actually thinking about future of work as a way of being more adaptable, more agile or, or more resilient as a, as a business in the future? Um. I don't know. It's a great question, Ryan. I don't know if people are thinking of it as a way to be more productive yet, right? I think what's really getting to, I think two things are driving the CEO level focus. One is we have to make some decisions and they're actually big decisions about location and people and strategy. The second, I think the more primary factor is there's a talent shortage, I mean, even with a, you know, impending recession, there's a huge talent shortage. And even if the recession hits, don't you want to keep the best talent? And people are losing talent. They're losing it on what I call the desk-based population and the deskless population. So the desk-based populations are like office workers, you know, what other people call white collar or knowledge. I hate that term, white collar, blue collar, knowledge. And so what are people who are not knowledge workers, dumb workers, right? Unknowledgeable. Um, so I use, for lack of a better word, desk space. So the, you know, anywhere between 20 to 30% of the global workforce that can take a laptop home and do their work remotely and deskless be anywhere from 70 to 80% of the global workforce population that actually has to physically be with equipment or in-premise, like retail, factory, laboratory, hospital, distribution. I mean, it goes on and on. Both those populations are having, you know, work uh, workplaces are having a hard time retaining and recruiting. And so there are shortages, real shortages. I mean, you feel it, if right, if you take a trip anywhere. Um, I was in a hotel where they're like, we're sorry, there's no room service because we don't have the staff, right? Flights being canceled. Everyone is feeling that. And so I think that's the motivator now, more so than, oh, we could reinvent our business strategy. It's more, we have to reinvent our work to keep and attract workers. I wish they were coming at it from a, gosh, this is better for how we serve our customers and value delivery, but I'll take what I could get, whatever triggers people to rethink it. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Hey, friends, we'll get back to our episode in just a moment. But first, I want to take this opportunity to let you know that Looking Forward is part of Surround, a podcast network curated by Sandow Design Group. Surround brings together some of the best architecture and design-driven audio content available. So if you like what you hear from us, visit surroundpodcasts.com and check out some of the other great shows on the network. Well, as part of your ongoing research involvement, you've been um, a key builder in Future Forum, uh, which is an organization that Miller Knowles privileged to be involved with as well. Tell us a little bit about that and in your, in your involvement. Yeah, so you know, it's interesting. I've I've never been much of a writer. I, in fact, went into consulting because we communicate with bullet points instead of prose. Um, that was one reason, right? And, you know, everyone has, like, even, like, my SAT scores, much higher math than verbal. And, you know, something moved me at the beginning of COVID to write about the experience. We had a leadership team meeting where we were all supposed to be together in Madrid. No, sorry, Milan, hotspot, right? Milan. It was, like, the second week in March. And two days before we were supposed to all fly into Milan to be together, we canceled it and did the whole thing on Zoom. And it was a miserable experience. And so I just wrote about it, maybe like cathartically, and put it on LinkedIn and it got like 4,000 likes. And now I know why kids like Instagram and Snapchat and all those things. It was heady. I was like, whoo, people like what I have to say. So I just started writing, but very like just stream of consciousness, writing about it. And as I said, got sort of really obsessed with this is an opportunity to change the world and make these interactions better and more fulfilling and more productive and more humane. So I started writing in LinkedIn and then I, you know, graduated to a Forbes post I put out every two weeks on it and doing research about it. Right. So I started doing research, BCG, you know, fielding research. We put out a paper, I think, early on the first summer in 2020 saying, you know, what 12,000 employees have to say about the future of work. And we were approached by Brian Elliott, who's head of Future Forum, actually a Boston Consulting Group alum. And so he came through someone he worked with, approached me and said, you know, should we collaborate? And it turns out they were doing the same exact research. We were like future of work soulmates, like really, like the way Brian and Helen, you know, and the team are thinking about it and Sheila, it, it was just so aligned with how my team and I were thinking about it. So we decided to join forces and we do the research together. Every quarter we put it out as part of Future Forum. And it's been fabulous. We've also convened working groups that we started you know, to meet monthly to just talk through real time. What are you doing? What are you doing? What issues are you facing? And we've been doing those monthly working groups for a year and a half now. It started with um, 24 C-suite executives for six months, then expanded to, I think, something like 80 across you know, four or five different groups. Now we're up to 130 across six groups. We're all figuring this out real time. There's so many issues to get help from other people on and compare notes on. And so that's what, you know, Future Forum has really evolved into both this working group to problem solve and share learnings together and this research that we put out together, which is fabulous. Well, we're thankful that you and Brian and the team expanded the circle so that Miller Knoll and Management Leadership for Tomorrow could come on as founding partners as well. I personally have found the entire experience incredibly enriching. Given the breadth of topics that 
are being discussed about both desk workers and deskless workers, which I like that vernacular, by the way, because I also struggle with the term knowledge worker and office worker doesn't feel like it holds quite the same accuracy as it once did. How would you characterize the major issues uh, in terms of things that need to be overcome by organizations in order to work better in the future than they do today? Well, gosh, there's so much. I think, you know, for desk-based workers, there's a lot around flexibility. And and it's a misnomer, this days in office question. Like to have a senior leader dictate how many days a week you should be in the office is only a marginal improvement over having to be in the office all the time. I know everyone's perseverating on it, but that's not the issue. It's like the symptom of the issue. The issue is trust, accountability, flexibility, agency. And so allowing teams to figure out what is the best way for us to collectively deliver and have leadership hold us accountable for impact, not just output, because output, you could have quantity and not quality, right? But for impact, you know, so if you interview or you survey desk-based employees, what they say they want is number one, compensation, number two, flexibility, number three, connection to colleagues and to senior people. That's what we need to try and solve for. And on the compensation one, by the way, I think COVID has changed how the world thinks. You know, it's moved the world from we live to work till we work to live. You know, it reminded us what our priorities are and family and community and, and work, right? We want to be fulfilled and have an impact in the world, but it's not all of us, right? So that's the desk-based population. You know, interestingly, we just literally at midnight last night today launched a press release and launched a piece of research online around the deskless worker because there are way too few people focusing on that. And I have to ask, what, like when I ask myself, why is it these deskless workers, people in factories, retail stores, distribution centers, hospitals, laboratories, you name it, they're 70 to 80% of the global workforce. So why is it that the media and leadership is really focusing on these days per week for desk-based workers? And I think it's because we're all desk-based workers, Right. Media people can work from home and leadership can work from home. Management can work from home. So like, it's just not in our mental scope, but really, so this research tells us, so we launched a piece of research literally last night. It's, I mean, we shared the findings last night and it's out there and it's fascinating. It shows that 37% of deskless workers are at risk for leaving their company. And you could break that 37% down into 12% are actually looking for a new job, 12% aren't sure if they're staying or going, and 13% say they're staying, but they're not committing past six months. So 37% are at risk of leaving. And if you ask them why, number one is career opportunities, right? How do I move from this entry-level job into a better life for myself and my family? Second is compensation related to that. Then you get into flexibility. More people care about flex in time than flex in place. So you may think, well, this doesn't pertain to the deskless worker, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are shifts the way they are? You know, some retail companies are experimenting with shift marketplaces because if you have something for your kid or someone's sick and you want to take care of them or you have a refrigerator repairman coming, 
your manager won't give you time off. Well, you're going to call in sick and take it anyhow. So why not create a shift marketplace where people could trade their shifts? Why are shifts the way they are, right? So there's a lot of flexibility or, or even examples of retailers who are letting their salespeople work from home because part of what they do is email their best clients with, you know, hey, some new items came in or, you know, or the administrative part of being a sales manager, you could do that from home. And so we're like, so rethinking flexibility is also key for a deskless population. It, it just looks different. And then it's issues of like appreciation. I enjoy my work and it's about making work better. And so similar themes as the desk-based population, they just manifest themselves in different ways. That's fascinating. And it's very useful information. I get asked about this all the time, by the way, even though I might be spending time with organizations thinking about their corporate real estate footprint. As we talk about user flexibility, it often comes up that, well, flexibility isn't just something that people who traditionally worked in offices need. It does seem like time and this notion of a fixed schedule and this expectation that people are productive in very specific times seems to be the red thread that goes through all of it. But I just want to go back for a second to the movement for leaders to mandate a specific amount of time or in some cases, very specific days for desk workers in the office. It is felt to us as we observe organizations counterproductive the more prescriptive it is, it seems like the more resistance comes around. What are you seeing there? Is there a better approach? Oh my God. Yes. Thank you for asking. Well, I think it's become like religion or politics at this point. You have very famously the investment banks, you know, and Elon Musk now, if you want to pretend to work for another, you know, do it for another organization, not here at Tesla, you have to be on site 40 hours a week. I wonder where he is, right? Hopefully he's not listening or maybe hopefully he is. But there's this religion, right? Like I need people here. That's the way it needs to be. Connections are made in hallways. Well, baloney, what hallways is it like everyone walking in? Executive suite hallway, right? To the complete, we could be completely remote, do what you want. I honestly believe the answer's in the middle. And it depends on the type of work. I use this analogy. I, I said earlier, I write for Forbes. I have a piece that I'm writing right now that compares work, figuring out what method of work for what interaction. I compare it to the sorting hat, right? Harry Potter had the sorting hat and it says, okay, I look inside your mind and you're Gryffindor and you're Hufflepuff and you're Slytherin, right? And it's the same thing. You should think about, okay, this is what we need to accomplish Therefore, this is the interaction we need, and that will determine where, when, how, why. Does it have to be synchronous? Could it be asynchronous, like a shared document? Can we do it actually easier by Zoom because we could do live polls and people could get a voice in and it democratizes the head of the table phenomenon, right? Or, you know what? This is social and connection, and we have to be together in the room. And so we have to build a muscle to sort our work with intentionality. I know it's an overused word, but it's the right word. And so back to executives, they're on the prescribed days versus not prescribed days. And I'm on the, well, can we be as thoughtful about the work as we are about, I don't know, product launches or operational questions um, or customer questions, right? How should the work be done? Let's be intentional about it. And so you know, I try and move people to the middle 
to this, it's not about a prescription. It's about solving for the best way to get something done. And because workplaces are so complex, like command and control leadership has been dead for a long time because, you know, the world is changing too fast. Like it worked in the industrial revolution when we need to manufacture widgets, but it doesn't work now when the speed and complexity, there's no one sitting at the top that knows the answer. It, the answer is actually at the front line. And so what I encourage people to do is set some guardrails, right? Some guardrails, like determine the models by team, not individual. So you're together or apart. When you set the model, worry about cybersecurity and tax implications, worry about DE&I and maintaining a level playing field. By the way, you've seen the data, right, Ryan, about Black and Hispanic talent in the desk-based worker world has gone up. 24 and like 35% over COVID, their sense of belonging has gone up, right? By 25, 30% because, so you need to think about that. So you could set some guardrails, but then empower your leaders below and the artist, what's the right level to say, okay, given our work, given our team, given our individual lives, what are the right ways for us to work? And then let's experiment and try it and then collect the data and say, did it work? Did it not work? Nobody has the answer. So how do we go into this with humility to say, we've got to learn our way to a better future together and let's try some things or better yet, let me let you try some things. And I'm just going to set some guardrails and I'm going to ask you collect data and you learn and you share your learnings. Yeah, what you're describing is almost like there's a cascading effect of how the organization really learns to be productive and take charge of its own productivity throughout the organization. And the less centralized it is, the more that organizations can work in new ways. And, and interestingly, by the way, we've been sharing for a while anecdotally that many organizations that embrace a remote first approach and tell their employees they can work when and where they want, with, with some limitations, often have thriving physical workplaces because very few people actually want to be entirely remote. But one of the critical factors may be that each employee or certainly each team has thought differently about, oh, this is how we can go do our work, which is an important thing. I have sensed at times for organizations that haven't achieved that, a real tension around what may be perceived as hypocrisy among the leaders that want the organization to work in one way, but maybe it's unrealistic or maybe they don't model it. Have you seen this? For sure. I've seen it. I don't know. Yeah, it definitely exists. And the data supports it. And we've got great future forum data that shows that. And we also have future forum data and there's new stuff coming out in a week or so that, that shows that people are being forced to work in office five days a week are like so unhappy compared to those who have flexibility. But I wonder what's driving the hypocrisy. Is it, you know, do what I say, not what I do? Or is it a, well, we've earned the right to be flexible. We've proven ourselves, right? At my level, I can afford to be more flexible than you. Or maybe there's a third thing, which is they're taking advantage of flexibility, but they're hoping people don't notice. Of course, everyone notices. But regardless of what it is, you've got to align it. I've also seen the reverse, by the way, which is even more dangerous, where leaders are telling people they could be flexible, but they themselves are coming in five days a week because 
that's how they grew up. They make jokes, oh, the missus doesn't want me at home. She says I'm getting in her way. Okay, that is wrong. <laughs> First of all, most people below you don't have stay-at-home spouses or missus. And so if senior leaders are in because of choice, their preference, what happens? Well, everyone's like, well, if they're in, I better be in. You know, And I've even heard like senior executives say, well, our CEO is in, so I better be in. I'm like, you're a senior executive. Like, who cares what you're seeing? But they feel the pressure too. So I think leaders need to think if you're giving your people flexibility, you need to role model extreme flexibility. I, I talk about, what is it? This is Australian um, technology company, like Telesis or something that early on in COVID, they did something really symbolic on their website. They took the pictures, meet our executive team, which were all people in suits and offices. And they changed them to pictures of those executives working from home in casual clothes or as casual as a senior executive can get, right? And symbolically, I think that was so important to say, hey, it's okay for us, so it's okay for you too. That's fascinating. You touched on a few things there that really caught my attention, but one that I just want to go back to is one that I hadn't previously thought about, which is the notion that for some people, flexibility may be viewed as an earned privilege, not just earning in, in the sense that you're responsible enough to be flexible, but literally as you graduate in your career and rise up the ranks, flexibility may come as a perk or a privilege. Um, that's a provocative thought, but one of the things it reminds me of is one of the brands within Miller Knoll, Herman Miller, released a desk all the way back in the 40s for home or the office. So like the OG hybrid working, but it was called executive office group because realistically the only people who had that privilege were the executives. Yeah. Yeah. And I make that point in my TED talk, which is instead of putting rules in place because you're worried people haven't earned it, right? They might abuse it. Use performance management evaluate people based on whether they deliver impact or not and trust them to deliver and they turn out not trustworthy, we'll deal with that with performance management. So you should call your desk the everybody desk and then say, okay, but we're going to take it back if you don't deliver. <laughs> well, I, I think that's where we got to as well a long, a long time ago and have been waiting for that reality to catch up. Speaking of which, do you think at all about the role of the physical work environment in the course of what you do? Clearly, it occupies a lot of our thinking, but I'm just curious if in your work, you've thought a little bit about the role of either offices or, or corporate offices or home offices and how they need to support work differently. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I have a colleague, you may want to interview her in the future, Christy Woolsey, who full-time. I know Christy. Yeah. She thinks about this stuff full-time, including the metaverse. I wrote a, I interviewed her for a piece on Forbes around called What is the Metaverse and Why Should You Care? Because I really didn't really understand it, but now I understand it, thanks to Christy. But I think a lot about it because, you know, some of us, like here I am, you can't see it on the podcast, but I'm working from my home office. So I'm, I'm fortunate enough in life to have a house big enough to have a home office. You know, I'm on the phone with a lot of junior people who are in their bedroom. And so not everyone has a home they could work from or a home setup that they could work from. So one, you need to think about how to help people get home setups or access to co-working spaces locally, which because extroverts, even if you have a great office, extroverts don't like, you know, just being them and their dog. 
So that's one part of it. How do you get a good work setup? But also back to my sorting hat analogy, if the role of being in the office now is to collaborate and connect and form social bonds, then what an office is, it has to look very different, right? And so, and for example, I've heard so many people say, well, I love going to the office to see people, but I can't get any work done because I'm so social the whole time. And back to, the, again, the sorting hat and intentionality, you need to think about, okay, well, what should I put on the calendar for days I'm at home or a remote workspace? And what should I put on the calendar for days I'm in the office? I mean, even now I'm either at a client or at home because my space in my office is just a little, you know, cubicle. And to be on Zoom there all day doesn't make sense because I play this global role at BCG. So I'm talking to people all over the world all the time. So either I'm with them in person or I'm with them remotely. But when there are affiliation events and mentoring events and training events that I, you know, choose to participate in or need to participate in, then for sure I go to the office. But I'm not going in my cubicle, right? I'm in more common space. And then the metaverse is like, as they say in Boston, wicked cool to think about. <laughs> wicked cool to think about, right? What that means. And that like probably the office of the metaverse is a padded room. So you don't like hit into things as you're doing all your hand motions. You should think about that at Miller Knoll, actually. The padded metaverse office. So I don't know that we, we've gotten into padded, but it is something we've been thinking about for a long time. And sorry to keep referencing some of our historical moments, but it was interesting back um, many years ago when Second Life came out, Herm Miller specifically not only began to create products, uh, but sell them. So if we, if we think of the concept of an NFT, there were digital Eames lounge chairs being sold within Second Life years ago. So the metaverse is something that our, our team, our digital teams and others have been thinking about, and we might even dive into this within a, a podcast episode in the near future. So your your reference to it is a, a very good teaser. Um, I know we're coming up a little bit on time here. So let me um, go to one kind of closing question. Given all the people you've helped and all the topics you've talked about, if, if you had a friend who was CEO uh, of a large organization, sincere desire to offer more flexibility to work in new ways, but maybe found the entire process to be somewhat overwhelming, how would you counsel that that they start? Like what's, what's the best place to begin this journey if they're not already? Gosh, there's so much I wanna tell a CEO of a large organization. First of all, they should hire BCG to help them think through it. No, um, that was a half joke, but you've got to approach it like you would approach any big change. Like this is not a policy you put on paper and you send out to people. You need to rewire how work gets done. And so any large organizational transformation, any launch in a new market, any launch of a new product line, right? Any new customer segment you're all of a sudden moving into to serve, any new partnership, those all take real work. Well, guess what? Rewiring the rhythms and routines of thousands of workers to transformatively elevate productivity, engagement, impact, results, satisfaction to become a talent magnet, which is the big motivator, as I said, that takes some work. And 
it also takes some alignment. You can't start until you have alignment as a leadership team, like this is important to us. What are we trying to achieve with this? Like, like why are like for the people telling people back to come in the office, what are you trying to achieve? What's the goal? Is the goal to maximize attrition? No, I'm just kidding. Get your leadership team aligned on what you need to do and then approach it analytically. Listen, get data from your team, survey them. Everyone's like, oh, they're over-surveyed. Trust me, people will answer any survey on the future of work with whatever frequency you want because they care. They really care about it. People are tired of surveying things that they never see action based on, maybe. So get data and then co-create that future with your people. You are too disconnected from the realities of a new tech hire to create a future of work that will attract them. I just say a new tech hire because there's such a shortage there, right? And so pick your best people at every level and enable them to create a future of work that will allow them to deliver because they want to deliver because that's how they get rewarded. And that's how they feel satisfaction. How, it's how they get rewarded in your performance management system, but also how they get personal sense of reward is impact with a team. So empower them to figure it out and experiment as you go. So you got to set it up well. You got to be data-driven. You have to empower people. You have to experiment and learn as you go. And it'll be awesome. That's fantastic. By the way, I lied to you. I do have one very brief follow-up question that I forgot to ask you. And I've been asked it and I never quite know how to answer. It appears as though the economy, at least in North America, is softening. So much of our future of work conversation has been driven by the the desire to keep and, and acquire great talent. Do you see all that we've talked about in this episode lessening if we start to see a, a recession or prolonged stagflation or other economic concerns that uh, maybe make talent a little more available? It's a great question. Um, so I think no, it like theoretically no, practically yes. And what I mean by that is, of course, it shouldn't lessen it because guess what you need to do to survive in a stagflation? You have to get more productive, you got to digitize more, you got to automate more, which means the talent you need is more at risk. And so your best talent will be a shortage um, to drive your transformation agenda in a tougher economic environment than not. And yeah, if you want all the bad talent, go ahead and not address it. So that's the theoretical right answer, right? The academically right answer. Practically, I think leaders will say, oh, well, we no longer have thousands of open positions anymore, and they'll take their feet off the pedal. Well, they'll fall behind in the long term. You know, you take disruption as an opportunity to change for the better under the hood of the disruption. COVID was one motivator. We're doing it now. I hope a recession and stagflation would be seen as even another reason to do it even more so you could have the best of the best so you can be more productive and efficient and innovative in those times, which is what you need. I'm so thankful for your insights. It's, it, it is truly a privilege to be able to collaborate with you and the team. So thank you for sharing your insights with our listeners. I'm looking forward. We appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. As you could tell, I'm on a little bit of a mission. So any platform to try and convince people to do this the right way is, uh, is helpful. So thank you very much, Ryan. Great to talk to you.